I love it when I see people in the community and they ask me, so what are you preaching on this season at the chapel? And I've been saying, well, I'm, I'm praying between Colossians and Ephesians, and that's where we're going to be. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to get to Ephesians eventually today. We're going to start in the book of Genesis for this reason. My anniversary was about 10 days ago. And um, my wife and I went out to eat, and I made the mistake of putting something on Facebook that it was my anniversary. And the people at the restaurant we go to are friends of mine on Facebook, so they both, the, the wife came out first and sang Happy Anniversary, which is really not a Happy Anniversary song, I don't think. She just made one up. A little while later, her husband came out and did the same thing, same song. So maybe they've done it before. Maybe there is a Happy Anniversary song. But then I heard this comment from behind me, a lady behind us said, well, congratulations or condolences, whichever applies. And I hear those kind of jokes about marriage, and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the fact that we've allowed the world to hijack marriage. And marriage was whose idea? It was God's idea. It wasn't our government's idea. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't your idea. It was God's idea from the very beginning, and it's a good thing. I remember when I was getting married. Why, ladies, maybe you just didn't happen to you, but men, they think it's funny to talk bad about, you know, say, well, you're about to get linked up to the ball and chain and all of those kind of things. And I think, hey, I'm kind of looking forward to this. The other thing I heard was, well, you just wait. In the first year of marriage, you just better be prepared for a big surprise. And I knew what they were talking about wasn't going to be good. I've been married 37 years. My wife and I talk about this often. We're still waiting for this bad surprise to hit. Why is that? Because it isn't going to hit. If you've got a bad marriage, it's probably because you're doing it the wrong way. Because it was God's idea from the beginning. And if you do it God's way, it's a good thing. So we're going to look at Genesis. All the way back at the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, He created man. So let's look at verses 18 through 25 to start with. Are you there? Genesis chapter 2. First book of the Bible. Unless you've got one of those Bibles that are in a different order than mine. Are there such things as Bibles in alphabetical order? That would be helpful, wouldn't it? But this is biblical order, I suppose. More chronological. Let's look at verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of the, one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which had, he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, every animal that 
walks the face of the earth. He's created man. And at least six times he said, it was good. The only thing he says in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that wasn't good was what? It's not good for man to be alone. Let me tell you something. It is not good for man to be alone. Ladies, we need you. And God knew that. And so God said, I'm going to create a helper suitable for him. Let me explain what those two words mean. When you hear helper, you kind of think flunky. You think, well, I guess I'm supposed to follow around behind and tote his stuff. No. The word helper is used more often of God in Scripture than it is of the woman. And the word suitable means corresponding to. So here's what God's saying. I am going to create a creature that fits, corresponds with, suitable for man. Now, that was God's plan from the beginning. I don't think this was an afterthought. I don't think God created all the male and female animals and goes, well, you know, I didn't think about it. Maybe he needed a wife. No, I think God allowed Adam to see the natural course of nature. And Adam named all the animals. Do you think Adam looked and he saw every animal? He thought, well, why is there a male and a female? But none of these suit me. None of these look good for me. And so God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so God created woman. And I think when Eve was created, Adam said, you did it well, well, God. And then in verse 24 it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. I want to, I want to illustrate that. Let me show you. I need a couple of, well, I need four volunteers. So thanks, Daryl and Harriet. Y'all would come up here. What's your name? John, would you help me? And what's your name? Lisa? Alyssa? Y'all aren't boyfriend and girlfriend. Right? Good. Are you brother and sister? Good. Then stand up. John and Alyssa? Did I get that right? This is Daryl and Harriet. John, for purpose, this is your mother. This is your father. You're marrying her. So you're all right with that? All right. This is for illustration purposes only. Nothing binding here. Okay? All right. So, y'all, y'all I'm going to stand right here. Harriet, you stand here. Daryl, you come here. You stand there. You stand over. Get on the other side of Harriet. This is kind of the way it looks, right, at church. When you get married, who gives this woman to be married to this man? You're, get, you're doing it. This is their youth pastor. Is this a good thing or not? I've already been told you're a troublemaker. I'm watching you. You think this is a good thing? I will say this. Time out. Years after my wife and I have been married for a long time, our former youth pastor came and spent the night in our house, and I said, Hank, because we grew up in the same church. I said, Did, would you have put us together? And he said, Robert, I wouldn't have put anybody with you. So that's the truth, true story. So, so you have the marriage ceremony. I now pronounce you pretend just for the sake of the next seconds. This ain't going to last long. You all right with that? You know, I kind of think John's thinking, no, he's not. Uh, I pronounce you husband and wife. Here, here's what leave means. Come here, the two of you. Y'all stay right there. This is what leave looks like. All right, now stop. And then cleave. Cleave means they become one, one flesh. It literally means glued to, okay? Y'all just stay there for a minute because I don't want you walking by yet. Y'all all right? Mamas always cry at weddings. <laughs> all right, 
Now, I'm not doing that to illustrate any other thing than, than this purpose. The two words that are real important is leave. Man leaves his father and mother, and then what does he do? Cleave, literally glued to, cemented to. So how can that ever be broken? Well, this is one sheet of paper. Here's what happens in divorce. Because it's one. You've now made two out of it. It wasn't God's plan. Now, divorce is not the unpardonable sin, and there's friends of mine that are divorced in here. And I would tell you, they hate divorce just as much as God does when he said in Malachi, I hate divorce. But here's where the world's messing us up. We don't leave and cleave. We don't leave. And then we don't cleave. Thank y'all for participating. Y'all go have a seat. Y'all, you can sit somewhere else if you'd like to. <laughs> Alyssa, are we still friends? So the world has hijacked marriage and said things like, I've even heard wedding vows. In a Christian ceremony, it's you shall love each other as long as you both shall live. The world has changed that to what? We shall love each other as long as we shall stay together as long as we both shall love. So, you know, three or four years from now, if this ain't working out, I'll trade you in on a newer model. That is not God's plan. God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2. And so from the very beginning, God's purpose was a man and a woman to leave mom and dad. Now, there's still, there's still places in Scripture that talks about you, when you leave them, I mean, you still honor your parents. You still take care of your parents, okay? But the wife husband becomes the most important female in your life. The man wife becomes the most important man in your life. That means daddy ain't the most important anymore. That means mama's not the most important anymore. You shall leave and cleave, and the two shall become one. Well, that's God's plan. There's always a party pooper. And in this case, it's the devil. Let me tell you something. He hadn't quit from the very beginning. He's been trying to break up the institution of the home. Why? Because I believe it's the most important institution in the world is the home. And Satan's attacking it, attacking it, attacking it. You don't, have to go, you don't have to watch many news reports or read many newspapers to realize what Satan's doing on planet Earth this day to destroy marriages. Look what he did in the garden. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Everything was good, right? Chapter 2 ends. They're both naked and not ashamed. Husband and wife joined together by God, one flesh now. Now the serpent, verse 1, chapter 3 was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Let me just tell you, Satan knows Scripture and he will twist it. So he comes to her, sneaks up. Has God really said that you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, 
She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So Satan comes, gets the woman's attention, and this is the way sin happens. James chapter 1 describes it, or chapter 2, end of chapter 1, verse, or chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, he says, we're all tempted when we're enticed and carried away. Okay? So Eve's taking care of business, doing what she ought to do. Satan comes up and offers this suggestion. Has God said you can't eat any of this stuff? And so she engages in conversation. Oh, yeah, we can eat of any tree, just that one in the middle of the garden. He said we shouldn't eat it or touch it. He didn't say touch it. He just said eat it or we'll die. And Satan said you will not die. What's Satan saying? God's lying to you. God's holding back on you. And that's been Satan's ploy. Satan comes to us and says, hey, listen, you want to be really happy? You want to feel good? You want to be popular? Do this. And we think, well, that's not right. No, do this. You'll, you'll be a better man. You'll be a better woman. You'll feel better. This is good. God's holding out on you. What's the truth about God? He's a good, good father. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? God. And so Satan started this in Genesis. He's still doing it. So be careful because here's how he lies to us. And she says, no, it's just that one. And he says, you will not die. Okay, God has said, don't do it or you'll die. Satan says, oh, no, 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 you won't die. Here's how dumb Satan is. Satan was a created angel. The Bible tells us he's the most beautiful of all angels, had a snappy sports coat. He looked at God one day and said, look at God. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. I think I can take him. So he thinks, I'm going to put my throne above God's throne. That's how Satan got cast out of heaven and took a third of the angels with him. And so Satan is now roaming the earth, trying to hurt God through us. You want to hurt a parent, hurt their children. That's what Satan knows. To hurt God, I'm going to hurt his children. So from the very beginning, he's been lying and causing us to question, did God really say? And unfortunately, sin has consequences. So what is Eve? She looks at the fruit and says, you know what? It does look nice. I bet that's going to be really good. And so she ate it. And she gave it to her husband. Now, apparently he was off playing golf, right? No, where was the husband? He was right with her. He heard the whole thing. We blame Eve initially because she talked to the devil, but he's right there. She said she ate and she gave it to her husband who was with her. Adam ate, and what happened? They realized they're naked. In fact, I love it. When God finally comes into the garden, he said, Who told you you were naked? Because that didn't bother you up till this point. You've eaten of the fruit, haven't you? So they realized they had sinned. So what do they do? Start making clothes out of fig leaves. That's why God said, from now on, I'll wear the plants in this family. No, never mind. They're going to get cast out of the garden. He's going to say, you've just got us kicked out of house and home. But there's continuing consequences of sin, and it goes on in chapter 3. I'm not going to take time to look at it, but basically he says to the woman, you're going to experience more pain in childbirth. To the man, it's going to now be the sweat of your brow. You're going to cultivate this ground. Thorns and growth, thorns and thistles are going to grow up. 
And woman, your desire is going to be to rule over your husband, and your husband is going to have a desire to keep you under his foot. That was not God's plan from the very beginning. So how does God restore that? He, he does it through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is how God's plan has been restored. And again, this is God saying, here's how marriage ought to work. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he's about to unpack what that looks like, and he's going to get into relationships. He's Toward the end of chapter 5, he gets into the relationship of husband and wife, and he gets into relationship of children and their parents, and he gets into relationship of slaves and masters or bosses and employees. But it all starts with this idea, be imitators of God. The word is the word mimic. The Greek word is mimic. It's where we get the word mimic from. Well, how do you imitate somebody? You imitate somebody by watching them really closely and doing what they do. There's great impersonators that can do the voice or the mannerisms or both, and you think, what a great imitator. So that's what... Paul is writing in Ephesians when he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We ought to imitate God. In fact, as children of God, there ought to be a family resemblance, right? We ought to look a little bit like our parents. And that scares some of you on the earthly plane. I remember going to pick our kids up from the nursery one day, and the nurse worker said, Well, we can tell which one's your kid. I thought, I don't know if they were bragging or complaining. I don't know, like, what did he do? Back when Steve Urkel was popular, I walked in one day, pulled my pants up high like he did. And I said, hey, kids, who do I look like? And they said, you look like grandmother. I thought, that's true. She wore stretchy pants. You just pull them up till they quit, you know. My son one day, who had taken scissor privileges away from him, thought it would be a good idea to cut his hair. The reason he lost his scissor privileges, he cut everything in the house. He just thought, this is cool. We had one of those little blankets that went over the back of the couch. They had little tassels on the end of it. So he just thought, snip, snip, snip. So he ruined that blanket. So we told him, you can't play with scissors anymore. Well, the sheriff of the house, which meant his older sister, came up and said, Dad, something's happening in the basement. I don't think you're going to like it. I went down to the basement, and my son had cut. He had bangs. He had cut them all the way up into his scalp. And since Robbie's not here, I'll tell you it was Robbie. Since Gabe's here, he's glad I'm telling you it's Robbie. And I said, Robbie, why did you do that? I'm mad, right? I'm about to punish this kid. I said, why did you do that? He said, I wanted to look like you. I thought... What we call this is a receding hairline, Robbie. It will happen. Trust me. We don't cause this to happen. People pay thousands of dollars to keep this from happening. But more than that, there ought to be a family resemblance to God. What we read about God the Father, what we see in Jesus Christ, our lives ought to picture that. And what he's about to unfold for us is just that, a picture of marriage and the church. The relationship of a husband and wife and a relationship of Jesus and the church. Bride and groom, 
Jesus the groom, the church his bride. Look at verse 21. So he's unpacked several things in this passage. We'll get to it in future weeks. But he says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is sub subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Let me stop there. So the first word he has is to the wives. Now, wives, as a man, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And before you shut me off, it's worse for the husbands. He says be subject really to each other. So in the church, we're to be subject to each other. What does that mean? It means putting the needs of others above ourselves. We live in a selfish generation, and I'm guilty. And when you hear the word be subject or submit to, if that sounds bad or evil, it's because of the generation we live in. Nobody does that anymore. But in the church, here's what we call to. We're called, first of all, to submit to Christ as our head and authority. But the role of husband and wife in the home is that the wife willingly submits to the husband because he's the head as set up by God. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. I came up with six things, and there could have been a whole lot more. I just narrowed it down. It doesn't mean subservience or slavery. Okay? And see, it's not something the husband forces on the wife, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. The, the word is literally a military term, originally in the Greek language, a military term that meant you willingly submitted to the leadership of the higher-ranking officers over you in the military. And so it's not slavery, it's not subservience. Second, it doesn't mean you agree on everything. I had a professor in seminary one time that said, you know what, you're going to disagree with people. If you agree with somebody on every single thing, one of you is unnecessary. Third, it doesn't mean leaving your brains at the altar. In fact, it doesn't necessarily mean the husband's smarter than the wife. And I just got to tell, I know, I know most of you. I don't know most of you. I know a lot of you. It's very rarely the husband's smarter than the wife. So we're not talking about IQ score here. We're talking about roles in the home. It also doesn't mean avoiding the effort to influence the husband. It doesn't mean putting the will of the husband above the will of Christ. So when it comes to a choice, do I obey God or my husband? Who do you obey? God. It also doesn't mean getting all of your spiritual growth and nourishment from your husband. Now, the hope is that your husband is this kind of spiritual leader that you would want to follow. And, men, I'm about to get to you. Here's what that would look like. But, wives, you do that in the fear of Christ. Literally, the reverence, the respect that you have for Christ. This is God's plan for the wives. Because the man is the head of the wife. The head gives direction. The body follows. Physically speaking, if the body doesn't follow the direction of the brain, it, there's crippling has taken place. It may be that there's a function disconnection and what your brain is telling the body to do, it can't do anymore. The same thing's true in marriage. If the husband's the head and the body doesn't follow, there's a problem. 
And let me just say this. Men, I think part of the problem is us. If you're a man that's not leading in the home, then the wife's going to have a hard time following. And I think we see avoided that kind of leadership in the church as well. Husbands, love your wives. What does that look like? Well, if you loved your wife the way Christ loved the church, what did Christ do for the church? This is audience participation. What did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. So the wife is to submit. The husband is to die. Literally lay his rights aside to lovingly serve his wife. Now, ladies, I believe you'd like to follow a guy like that. And husbands, you're to be a guy like that whether she's following you or not. So love your wives as Christ loved the church and became the Savior of the body. And gave himself up so that he might present her. And I love this picture. This is talking about Jesus, what he's done for the church. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Rose from the dead to conquer the power of sin. Sin is defeated. Death is defeated. Jesus has risen from the dead. And by faith in Christ, I'm alive. And he now presents the church. I love what the word present. It literally means to stand beside or exhibit. The picture is that what Jesus has done, he now stands beside us, presenting us to himself. As Colossians puts it, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Here, holy, blameless, without spot or wrinkle. That's the picture that Paul is trying to paint of marriage and the relationship to Christ and the church. I'm going to skip ahead, but he, he, he goes back and quotes that passage from Genesis that we've already read. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here's the question. Wives, question for you. Are you following God's plan for your marriage? Are you following your husband as a leader? Husbands, are you leading the way Christ has led the church? Are you submitting to one another in the fact that you're putting the other's needs above your own needs? And then what about those of you that have never been married? As I prepared this message and prayed this week, I realized there's three groups of people in the room today. There's some who've never been married. There's some who are currently married. And there's some who used to be married. Either through death or divorce, they're not married now. So if you're sitting here thinking, well, that all sounds great. What about me? Well, thanks for asking. i got three thoughts. Based on the character of God, based on what I see of marriage in Scripture, here's three things. If you want to be married, who do you think put that desire there? I think God did. The Bible said God gives us the desire of our heart, and I think at times we think that simply means, well, whatever I wish, He's going to give it to me. No, I think He gives us the desires. And so if you're sitting there thinking, why am I not married yet? If that desire is there, I believe it's because God put that desire there. And I believe he will fulfill that desire there. So be patient. Wait on the Lord. John, take time, all right? What grade are you in? Seventh grade. You got time, all right? Don't be getting married in eighth grade, all right? Wait until at least you're in high school. 
I'm just kidding. Wait a long time after that. Second, don't date someone who is obviously not someone you would marry. One of the questions we ask on applications here at the chapel is, should a Christian date a non-Christian? And I get some fudgy answers on that. Most of them will acknowledge, well, I know you shouldn't marry a non-Christian, but how do you know that maybe by me dating her, I won't lead her to Christ? That's called missionary dating. That is not a good idea. What does the Bible say? The Bible says bad company corrupts good character. So, yes, be friends with unbelievers. Try to influence them to Christ. But don't do it through missionary dating. Bless your heart. You're on the mission field. No, you're not. How do you know you wouldn't marry him? Well, maybe you don't until after you've been out with him one time. But if that person, you realize this is not who God would ever have me marry, then don't date him anymore. Be friends. And I know that's a tough way to break. Let's just be friends. That is, that's hard. I was kind of planning on a little more than that. But girls, don't date a guy you wouldn't marry. Guys, don't date a girl you wouldn't marry. In fact, dating is kind of new anyway. There's not a lot about dating. You know how they did it in the Bible? Dad got together with dad number two and said, how about my daughter and your son hooking up? And they may have done that when they were about three. I just got back from a trip to India. That's the way they still do it in India. There are people married in India that have been married 20 years. They've known each other since they were three and knew we were going to get married since we were three. How many girls wish it was still that way? You're scared to death of who dad would pick out, right? Any guys want to go back to that system? How about fathers? Any fathers here kind of wish it worked that way? Moms, how many of you are thinking, yeah, let's go back to those days? The problem is for some fathers, your, your daughter won't get married to your dad because you're not going to put her with anybody. Last thing is this. If you're single, stay pure in the meantime. Hebrews 13.4 says the marriage bed should be undefiled. So let me say this. If you somehow think, well, it's okay to live together, it is not. And I'm seeing that happening more and more in the church with people who claim to be Christians are testing it out, living together before marriage. That is not God's plan for you. That is not God's will, and it's not a good thing. Girls, if he couldn't wait for marriage, to sleep with you. How do you know he'll wait after marriage? If you can't trust him before marriage, how do you know you're going to trust him after marriage? We had a former summer staffer years, a long time ago, who I found out that his girlfriend had moved in with him. And I called him and I said, what is going on? He said, well, you know, my mom thought it would be a good idea. I said, wait a minute, this is the same mom that's been married four times? She's given marriage advice? Unbiblical marriage advice? Well, yeah. How's that working out for you? Now, some of you are saying, man, he really stepped on some toes today. I wasn't aiming at your toes. I was aiming at your heart and your mind for this reason. We in the church need to show the world how godly marriage looks because it's attractive. It's what the world really wants, but we haven't been showing it to them. So let's pray together. Bow your heads. Let me ask you a question. Is that the kind of marriage you want?
If it is, I want to invite you to do something. Girls, if you would say to God, God, if, if you're currently married, ladies, you're already a wife and you're saying, that's the kind of marriage I wish our marriage was, then tell God that. God, give me that kind of marriage. Husbands, if you would acknowledge, maybe that's not the way our marriage is right now, and your wife's sitting next to you, grab her hand. Tell her, honey, that's what I want for us. Be a leader. And if you're here and you're not married, or if you've never been married, and that's the kind of marriage you want, tell God that. Simply say, God, would you give me that kind of marriage? understanding that saying that, you need to say, God, make me that kind of person. Maybe the kind of person, if you're a wife, that would follow a husband's lead. Maybe the kind of person, if you're a husband, that would be that kind of sacrificial servant to your wife. And may the world notice the way marriage should work. We pray this in Christ's name. I invite you to stand for just a closing chorus.